welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of Spirit of Haggard, the new podcast from Haggard Equine Medical Institute. I am honored to get to host this one. I am Elizabeth James, and I am joined today by Dr. Fallon and Dr. Rathgaber, and I am so excited to get into this podcast, the goals of it, and just take everyone a little bit behind the scenes of life as an equine veterinarian. So I know that Haggard has been thinking about doing a podcast for a while, and I'm so excited that you guys have decided to do so. Dr. Rathgaber, I'm going to give this one to you. What would be the first thing that you would kind of want this podcast to share as an industry, as a career, as an equine veterinarian? What would the goals be on that? The goals would be just for for kids that want to do equine medicine to do it. It's great. It has been the the best decision of my life to be an equine practitioner and I've had the best time and I've worked on the best horses and I've met the best people and I just I want them to hear that and know that it's possible to have a life and have a family and and do it that would be the big goal yeah I love that and then what about obviously we're at Haggard you've been a vet at Haggard your whole career Um, what would you want them to get to see or to know about Haggard's I would want them to know everyone's stories because everyone here has an unbelievable and amazing story of how they got here, why they got here, why they are still here. <laughs> um, everyone has just a great story and I just think they need to hear that. We have, we have so many veterinarians. We're one of the largest practices in the world and to have all those stories, I mean, that's almost a year of podcasts right there. And the industry in Kentucky... Haggers is a huge part of the industry here, and I, I just want to share it. I just want them to learn about it. I love that. So we're also joined by Dr. Fallon, and you are one of the longest members here at Haggard, if not the longest member at the moment. Well, longest member in as far as the, the family history, but I'm not the oldest one here. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely not the oldest. <laughs> Let's clarify that. Yeah, now. Very no, just kidding that we with have you. that. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective, what would you want people listening to this podcast to know about the industry, to know about a career as an equine veterinarian? Thank you for the question. I appreciate what Rhonda had to say as far as a lead-in. And I think part of what excites me about putting this podcast together is that we can get out and tell our story as far as equine veterinarians, our own personal experiences, as Rhonda alluded to, uh, the ability to show them another facet of veterinary medicine. And, and with equine medicine, every day is a little bit different. You can go into different forms of equitation, uh, whether it's race horses and within the racing industry, you could be on the backstretch working on horses that are in work, or you could do be working on uh, lameness, be a lameness specialist. You could be a reproductive specialist working on foals and Uh, doing some sales work like I do, kind of a broad scope of experiences here in Central Kentucky. You might just do sport horses. You know, there's so many different vignettes that you can look at and potentially pursue as an equine vet alone. Uh, Even within our own practice, as Rhonda was talking about, the size of Haggard's being, if not the largest, one of the largest practices in the world. You know, we have ophthalmologists, board-certified ophthalmologists, board-certified reproductive specialist, you know, also known as a theriogenologist. We have board-certified surgeons, internal medicine and critical care doctors. We have our own hyperbaric facilities and lab, certified lab technicians here on campus. 
It's just there's so many different avenues you can pursue. What's inspiring to me is to see young people that are wanting to be exposed to the industry. And we, so we always talk about the industry. What do we mean by that? Most often that means the racing industry and thoroughbred industry and standard bread industry here in central Kentucky. But the equine veterinary aspect of servicing that industry, it's a global experience. The horses will take you to places you never dreamed of. And I think Rhonda can allude to that with, you know, her husband who's very involved in the, in the industry with one of the preeminent uh, farms and broodmare bands and racing organizations. We want to be able to share that excitement, enthusiasm, and that sort of wealth of experience as far as being an equine vet. And I think that there's a, there's a positive story to be told there. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, as an outsider, you know, you have in recent years heard the dark side or the difficulties, and yet, you know, I've known you for so long. I've known, you know, this practice for decades, and I know the people behind it. I know the upside of it. And I think you guys getting to tell your story is so neat because young people, I love college students, you know, they're excited and they're enthusiastic and they're looking for people to be excited and enthusiastic and not burnt out or not trying to talk them out of their dreams. And so I love your guys' goal behind this of, of being that positive voice that, that they're looking for. Um, you guys personally, because I know you guys and your stories and then also just the careers in equine veterinarian. So I think it's so exciting. Um, moving on with that, Dr. Fallon, I really want you to kind of walk us through the history of Haggard. Tell us a little bit about the history of this practice in particular. In 1875, my great-great-grandfather came down from, at that time, what was called the Toronto Veterinary College. He was asked to come over from England to help start the vet school in Toronto as their first surgeon. He was asked to come down and look at a at a bull in Winchester, Kentucky, a shorthorn bull named the Eighth Duke of Geneva, which is it's kind of fun. You can Google it and you'll see all kinds of pedigree stuff. Apparently this man had paid 10,000 gold ducats for this bull. I don't know what a ducat is or what it's worth, but he was a pretty, pretty fancy bull. And he had an intractable case of scours or diarrhea and they couldn't figure out how to fix him. So great-great-grandfather came down on the train in 1875 and he was from an area in England called the East Riding of Yorkshire, James Harriet country. And he thought Kentucky was reminiscent of his homeland and they needed veterinarians. There was not a graduate veterinarian in the state of Kentucky. So he elected to move his family down here. And uh, kind of an odd time because we're still in the reconstruction phase post-Civil War. And he starts out in February of 1876 in Winchester, Kentucky. Shortly thereafter, they wound up moving to practice to downtown in Lexington, which made sense because it's a larger city. And at that time, there were no automobiles, so the horses came to you. They were the wheels of commerce. And we worked on everything from livery horses to race horses. Fast forward to the early part of the 20th century with the advent of the automobile. The horse starts to be replaced by mechanical transportation. The horse is starting to phase out as far as those large liveries for you know moving tobacco and whiskey and whatever else we were trying to move around the town to well, it's an entertainment game with the, with the equine industry at that point. And it kind of gets to, you know, the evolution of equine medicine as a whole, which is part of the nexus for this podcast. You know, at that time, you wondered, well, what's going to happen with the practice? Because people really didn't do much work on small animals. 
you know, most of the most of the veterinarians were um, were large animal vets, and so the horse gets replaced by the automobile. The practice is still trucking along. World War One breaks out, the Spanish flu epidemic, and the practice still trucks along. And then you have the the Great Depression, and a lot of people had to decrease the number of horse holdings that they had. I know the farm that my grandfather managed. They had to, you know, literally euthanize half of their, their yearling crop because they couldn't afford to put them into training. So there were some major global events which impacted the equine industry here, not just transitioning to different modes of uh, transportation in society. But yet, Haggard still trucks along. And then you get to World War II, and at that time, um, most of the horses that we sold here in central Kentucky tended to go up to the New York sales. The sale that just happened this past week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, in Saratoga was one of the preeminent sales. And then uh, there was also a sale in Madison Square Garden. The game was to try and pull more of those horses to have them stay here in central Kentucky. So they developed the Breeder Sales Company, which eventually was subsumed by Keeneland. Um, And Uncle Charlie, who was my great uncle, he was one of the founding members of that sale company, along with many other horsemen here because they saw the need to have a local sales company. And it's turned out to obviously be a very profitable venture for the racetrack. World War II comes to a close. Everything's kind of clipping along. Again, I'm simplifying the history. My father started practicing here in 1956 and helping out Uncle Charlie. And at that time, most of the stables were private stables. Um, You know, you had the Whitney's and the and the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers, a lot of the old robber baron wealth that had farms here. A lot of that's transitioned now to more commercial farms that are open to to outside uh, breeders and people that are involved within the sport. And the industry still survives. It's very strong. The standard bread industry used to be nearly on equal footing as the thoroughbred industry here locally, but the standard breads have have definitely drawn down significantly from what they used to be. And the thoroughbred industry has continued to concentrate more and more here in central Kentucky. You also had the most severe economic recession that we had in 08 and 09. That dramatically affected the horse industry. Rhonda, what would you say? It dropped our numbers by probably 40%. I would agree, yeah. And the lending within just the three counties between Fayette, Bourbon, and Woodford County, which are the primary counties for for thoroughbreds, I think the lending overnight went down by over $500 million, which was massive. I mean, we had a lot of small breeders that were either taken out of business or had to change their lifestyle significantly. So, but we've continued to survive. The practice had to work with them, you know, try to help people through those hard economic times because irrespective of of, of where you are as far as your finances, the horses still need the health care. And so the practice has always stayed side by side and worked in lockstep with the best interests of taking care of the horse and their health and well-being, which what follows is the well-being of your clients. And that's always been our mantra is to you know, provide the best service with integrity that we can for our horses and then you know, the rest will follow. So as far as the history... I think I kind of weaved a lot in there, but I'm I'm the fifth generation to do this, and 
Will there be a sixth generation? Who knows? We'll see. I mean, I love that you talk to that. So one of the things that's so neat in the horse industry is when there's that continuity, there's something to be said about that practice, right? That, that, that it's withstood the test of time. The industry changes year to year, let alone over that much time span. Talk a little bit maybe about how Haggard's went from obviously being one person to becoming, you know, a corporate practice. So good question. You know, back for the first, I would say, 40 or 50 years, it was tended to be a father-son operation. You know, the, the Haggard sons were always expected to become veterinarians and come back and work and help out their dad. And that was a bit of my father's mantra was like, I, gotta get, I have to get back home and help his uncle. Um, we started hiring more outside vets. There were always outside veterinarians that would have worked with the group throughout its history. But in a larger scale, that started in the 30s when Dr. Art Davidson came from Iowa, came in about 1937. And Bill McGee came in about 1931 or two. He came from Washington State. He was born in, in Montana, um, which has a, a, a connection Already with yourself. <laughs> yes. And they wound up becoming partners with, with Uncle Charlie or Charlie Haggard, my great uncle. They, they grew their practice to approximately six or seven veterinarians up through the, the 60s. It might have even gotten up to maybe 13 to 15 veterinarians at that point. So at that point, it was a corporation. There were multiple shareholders within the, within the practice. Uh, yes, it was all locally owned, but they, they all, we didn't have a whole lot of overhead at that point because we didn't build the surgery uh, until around 1978, 79. Uh, and then not too long after that, we built the, the medicine facility when Dr. Byers arrived in about 1984, 1985. So it started to grow as a corporate entity from roughly the 50s on through and has continued to, to gain pace to where now, I know when I was an intern in 1996, I think there were about 16 veterinarians on the letterhead. And now we've got north of 60, 65, depending on fellows and interns. That's incredible. So, Dr. Ruth Gabriel, I'll come back to you. What was the decision to become an equine veterinarian? What was that decision like? I grew up raising quarter horses. Our family, my brother in particular, raised quarter horses. Um, they weren't they weren't my cup of tea. I liked the thoroughbreds and um, did a lot of eventing growing up, and always just just thought that's what I wanted to do. After I went to the Olympics, I was going to become an equine veterinarian. So I never made it to the Olympics. <laughs> so, but I did make it into vet school. Um, ironically, I was going to be a teacher if I didn't go to get into vet school. So I think sometimes there's a higher power that knows what's right for you. So I went to vet school and I, um, I chose the long route of vet school because I really was interested in research. I thought I wanted to get out, teach at a university and do research. Um, orthopedic type of research. So there was a program, it was a PhD DVM program at Washington State University. And I just kind of, I had applied to vet school, but I wasn't, I really wanted that program. Um, and I got in and I moved from University of Florida to Washington State and did research on the racetrack. We did um, locomotive studies and different racetrack surface studies. Got my PhD 
And in that program, you do two years, you do one year of vet school, two years of research, and then three years of vet school. It's a six-year program. It's a lot of work, a lot of school. (laughs) Sounds like it. And you know, when you're the graduate student, you get up, you feed the horses, you exercise the horses, you put the shoes on the horses, you pull the manes on the horses, then you go to school for a little while, and then you go back and do the horses again. So I thought I was in heaven. I thought, like, I don't even need a job. I could just do this forever until the bills started coming in. So anyway, I transferred mid to get closer to home. I transferred into Virginia Tech and finished my vet school at Virginia Tech and came to Lexington um, for an externship to visit. And I visited a couple farms down here. I worked at UK and visited Haggard's. And I think when, when you see those students and externs that come and they just get like the wow factor when they come here because it's every kind of horse every kind of horse farm every kind of breed every kind of horse owner that you've ever seen you either get that wow factor and I was like this is it this is where I want to go so I came here for a year and that was 29 years ago (laughs) and and it's been a great ride what about you Dr. Fallon your story I mean obviously it was in your blood it was in your genetics but there's obviously going to be a story behind that as well well, uh, thank you. I grew up riding with my father and started riding with him when I was probably five or six years old. And it was probably more of a hindrance than a help for a long time, but just loved being around the horses with him. He just, he loved to teach people, but in his own sort of quiet way, not in the classroom, but in the barn. Um, and he mentored a lot of the, the veterinarians that have, have come through Haggard's hallways over the years. And the one thing that I was even saying this morning before I came here, I had a couple of the, the younger doctors with me and, and one of the interns, and I was showing them a procedure that we do with foals. And it was at one of my dad's oldest, longest clients. And actually, Uncle Charlie used to do the work for him, but the farm's been in the family since the Jefferson administration, since uh, the early 1800s, so about eight generations, and just brilliant horse people, all hands-on. The moral of the story is we were in this barn where there used to be a remount for the Spanish-American War, and in that barn we were, Fred Mitchell was the, the, the farm manager. I was telling the story about, uh, that was the first barn where they isolated the equine, the Kentucky clade of equine influenza back in the 60s with my uncle Jack Bryans who was at the University of Kentucky he used to be the head of uh, equine science there but telling those stories to the young people it brought it back to life for me about why I became an equine vet those stories are just innumerable where you had those experiences where you're working in these places that you've raised generations and generations of horses but then you're also creating the new generation of of horsemen and i think something fred said to me this morning the farm manager said you know you were learning all the time more than you ever realized and i think even when i was just carrying the bucket or the ultrasound or getting something that you're you're learning about how to put the twitch on the right way not too tight how to handle the horse the right way and watching the good horsemen with them because you can learn so much just by osmosis and i that just brought it to life for me and dad truly enjoyed his career it wasn't getting out of bed was not going to work for him it truly was his passion and he loved it and it, i think he's imparted that with me and you know, hopefully my own children will, will find that same zeal and attraction for it. You know, whatever 
avenue they might pursue if they decide to do something within equine medicine, veterinary medicine as a whole, or maybe the equine industry, who knows? Well, guys, we've packed a lot of great information into this first podcast, so much so that we're going to break it up into two parts. So this wraps up part one, and we'll be posting part two coming soon. In the meantime, let's raise a glass to a successful podcast and to the spirit of Haggard. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Spirit of Haggard.